I'd like to acknowledge the Darul Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which this has been written and recorded. I wish to pay my respects to the elders past and present, and send my apologies for the continuing atrocities that have taken place to the land and people. As always, I'd also just like to start by saying welcome to Penguin Siege Productions. It's our goal here to be one of the top names in the Penguin podcasting game, so if you're a new listener, thank you very much for allowing us to achieve this goal. And with that, onto the podcast. Welcome to James Harden and the Downfall of Capitalism, Part 2, Opening the Sunroof. They love them, of course. Who doesn't love a star? As much as it's human nature for each individual to strive for success in their field and happiness in their life, it is arguable that an even more integral part of humanity is to look up at those lucky few who are graced with supernatural beauty, talent, wit or luck, the towering figures who span beyond their own lifetimes, forcing their names into the lineage halls of history. Achilles, Alexander, Caesar, Cleopatra, Jesus, Napoleon, Churchill, Chaplin, Elvis, MJ, Kim Kardashian. And that is just the western wing of fame. There are oh so many names whose fates echo throughout history, informing us all on what to do, what is right, and what is best. There does, however, seem to be an interesting shift in our relationship to stardom in the postmodern world. For most of these names on the list, their stardom and fame was a birthright, a mere matter of divine fate that left them separate from the mortal masses. For what warrior could compare oneself to Achilles, son of King Peleus and the goddess Thetis, dipped in the river Styx as a babe and charioted by the immortal horses Belios and Xanthos, a gift from Poseidon himself? Or what soldier could aspire to be Alexander, the great and undefeated conqueror king, taught by Aristotle, fathered by Zeus, an ancestor of Achilles? While it might be a daunting task to become a socialite the size of the Kardashians, it is certainly one that the Damalios can chase. However untouchable the goat, Michael Jordan may seem, there is always a LeBron to challenge his throne. It seems to me that the further down the halls we go, the less attainable these greats become. Growing up, I always thought this was a positive step, to move away from mythological figures, that to become secular in our thinking allowed us to separate from tyrannical regimes who only rule due to tenuous, self-affirmed ties to the divine. While I still think on balance it is clearly a positive, I'm not exactly petitioning to reinstate the SARS of old, I do think we have to begin to acknowledge the problems that the attainable stardom we see today can cause for both society and its stars. Now, people might be wondering why I keep emphasising Achilles. It's partially because I find it fun, and he's my favourite mythological warrior, but mostly because I think that the great Greek hero's dilemma aptly echoes the choice of stardom today. Through the Iliad, or in Troy if you want a more digestible medium, Achilles is torn between the choice of eternal fame or the simplicity of a long but anonymous life. Despite his mother's warning pleas, Achilles' pride gets the best of him and he heads to the Trojan War to find glory and become a warrior for the ages. While there, Achilles finds himself antagonised by the king Agamemnon, who not only brings a plague upon his troops, but who insults Achilles by stealing his war prize and maiden Briseis. This public affront on his pride almost causes Achilles to leave the war, as he has no wish to win a war for someone who does not appreciate him. After all, the man was brought there for his pride. To insult it in the act of victory is to leave his actions worthless. But like any great warrior, Achilles does finish what he started. After his closest companion, and definitely not lover, not in my good Christian household, Patroclus dies in Achilles' own armour. His wrath at the world overtakes his pride for himself. 
He butchers Patroclus's killer and the Prince of Troy, Hector, swinging the war in the Greeks' favour and sealing his fate and fame as the greatest Greek hero. Fool, pray not me about covenants. There can be no covenants between men and lions. Wolves and lamb can never be of one mind but hate each other out and out and through. Therefore there can be no understanding between you and me, nor may there be no covenants between us, till one or the other shall fall. They didn't call it an epic poem for nothing. That was Achilles' speech to Hector, after he had chased him around the entire battlefield three times because Hector was so scared to face his wrath, telling him that he was not going to respect his body or burial rights after he slaughters him. A cerebral man, Achilles had his own faults. Obviously not all the issues, though, were of his own making. Trapped under a king who doesn't care for him, Achilles faced a tough question. Should he help Agamemnon continue to achieve and conquer unjustly, so that he might get the fame Achilles' own talents deserve? Or should he stick his head down, live out a life underappreciated by society, and let his to-be family wallow in the unjust world that comes? This exact juxtaposition is very similar to the perpetual dilemma and cyclical oppression a lot of stars face now, and thus it is these questions that echo through to modern stardom. Whether it be basketball, music, acting, or politics, a lot of stars have built themselves up from underprivileged backgrounds, while they may not be directly under the tyranny of divine kings, the institutions that allow them to be stars, to be beacons of hope and help for those around them, also very often confirm the status of this systematic oppression that hurts their community. Take American rap, for example. Pretty periodically, a song or artist will make it big, one singing about the trap of ghettos, the power of money, or the weight of the justice system. Ambitions as a writer. Fuck the police. Cream. Gangster's paradise. Dance with the devil. 99 problems new slaves, money trees, this is America. Once these songs hit it big, the artist is put in a Achillean dilemma, so to speak. Should they embrace the fame, fortune, and success that comes due to their talents, and in doing so help confirm the capitalistic message in the broader media, that anyone can succeed if they deserve to? Or are they to turn away from the larger media, fight those who hold the concentration of power and thus be forgotten, or worse vilified, allowing the same system to roll over anyone? Now, I'm not trying to pretend that I'm the first one to articulate the role in stardom and oppression, nor am I trying to invalidate any of these songs or their meanings. There is a plethora of external reasons why these struggles keep getting voiced and not changed, and it should go without saying that the choices of these artists behind the songs is far from the primary reason why there is still so much racial and civil divide in America, and in Australia too. Hell, listen to Black of the Berry by Kendrick Lamar and you'll get a far more eloquent depiction of hypocrisy in hip-hop than you're going to get here. But, digression aside, by having success stories rise from underprivileged areas, we can sell the message that it is possible to succeed from these areas, that surely it can't be that uneven. With a good work ethic, anyone can find success. These false tales of equally probable outcome can serve to stagnate or sometimes freeze progression, which has become such a massive issue because it is easy for anyone to put on the societal shades and say, we've done enough, or I am helping. After all, Everyone wants to believe that what they're doing is right, that they are a good and ethical person. And look, it's nice if you can say that about yourself without any real sacrifice. However, as Malcolm X said, the white liberal is the worst enemy to America, and the worst enemy to the black man. The liberal elements of the whites are those who have perfected the art of selling themselves to the black man as a friend. Malcolm X said this because in his mind the upper-class liberals stopped true progression by being able to sell themselves and the world on the fact that they are helping, thus ironically keeping the status quo the same. 
I suppose today a lot of us might try and conflate the sort of liberal Malcolm X is talking about with social justice warriors or white knights. However, I think this would be a slight misinterpretation. I think his comments ring more true with virtual signaling corporations. This is because expanded in other similar speeches, Malcolm X likened liberals to foxes and conservatives to wolves, saying that foxes are more sinister because they try to kill you with a smile. But before I carry on, two clarifications. Firstly, as I'm sure everyone will be shocked to hear, I'm not African or American, or a modern historian, and such my commentary on the 60s civil right area should possibly be taken with, you know, a small grain of salt. And secondly, before any more Republicans, and trust me, I've seen plenty, try to twist this quote to say that they're actually better for the African-American community than the Democrats, you aren't. Malcolm's speech talks about how he fears conservatives less because their hate is public. You can see their racism and fight it head-on. And I shouldn't need to actually say this, but here we go. That consolation doesn't make you better or right. It just makes you plainer. In his speech, Malcolm hated this form of liberal so much because they were trying to use fake care for the African-American struggle to garner positive imagery for themselves. Whether that be politically or financially, it didn't really matter. What matters is that in these sorts of issues, we have to look beyond the words and symbols that groups and organisations say and look at the actions behind what they're doing. Of course, this sort of thing would be a little bit easier if we didn't have somewhat abundantly morally bankrupt media, but alas, reality being what it is, if you want to take mind of these sorts of issues, then you probably have to put in the hard yards, which... If you aren't already well acquainted with him, I'd strongly recommend read some Malcolm X, because, hot take, he has some good thoughts on the issues. But if you find him a bit unpalatable, James Baldwin or Tupac have equally important comments in the same area. Now, I point you all in this academic direction because, for one, they all have good things to say on how the liberal mindset can hinder social progression, but also because it's about time I steer this ship back to basketball. So, how does the Achillean Dilemma impact the NBA? Well, I'd posit it has its parallels with the player empowerment era. There is a lot of complaining in the media and grumbling amongst the owners about how players seem to have the audacity to request trades nowadays. How dare someone try to decide where they want to live and what's best for their family? You get drafted by Indiana, you stick it out. Reggie Miller did, and look at him now. A legend. Look, in theory I agree with the intention behind the player empowerment era. I do think there is an odd exceptionalism in how sporting contracts work, which can be unfair to the players. However, what we perceive as the player empowerment era doesn't actually do anything to address it. For want of a better term, it's a liberal implementation by the NBA stars, which allows said stars to gain the benefits of free movement without truly helping the bulk of the players. In fact, I'd go so far as to argue that it hurts the majority of the players. Just like Achilles on the battlefield, the stars gain their fame at the cost of the lives of the common soldiers. For those who aren't massive basketball fans, let me unpack the player empowerment era and why I claim it only helps stars. The player empowerment era is a broad concept which is effectively used to detail how modern NBA players have far more control over the league and their careers than their predecessors ever had. This is primarily expressed through current NBA stars being able to exploit the markets they find themselves in so that they can force trades to whatever destination they want after they've already signed their contracts. This increase of player control has been on a gradual ascent since the early days of the NBA, but the concept came to the forefront of the NBA conscience on July 8, 2010, with LeBron James' decision. The massive television event which broadcast what team LeBron would choose to sign with. Spoilers, he chose the Heat. It became the talk of the summer, with the show itself reaching viewership numbers that would eclipse most actual NBA games. 
It became a symbol that the power of the NBA was held by the players, that it was their stardom and their talent that brought intrigue and viewers to the game, and thus it should be on their decisions where the destiny of the NBA lies. I have no issue with this sentiment, I'm sure it doesn't shock anyone to hear, but I'm not exactly pro-owners. However, in reality the power of choice doesn't rest with the players, it rests with the stars. While it may be all well and good for Anthony Davis that he can have his agent manipulate a trade to the Lakers, how does Josh Hart feel about it? While it's great that James Harden can make a name for himself in Houston, where did Jeremy Lamb want to go? Ironically enough, we're seeing a prime example of this player right now, or at least at the time of recording, with James Harden. He is refusing to turn up to the Houston Rockets training camps, and is instead partying in Las Vegas, not very COVID safe, trying to stall out the team that has given him every opportunity in the world until they trade him. Fickle can be the heart, it seems. It was only last summer that Harden strongly encouraged the Rockets to trade for his old friend, Russell Westbrook, forcing his team to give up two first-round draft picks, hurting their future. But now, after Westbrook is asked to be traded, Harden is asking for one himself. Because now the future truly does look bleak, he no longer wishes to see it out. Unfortunately, this isn't exactly a new state of affairs for an NBA franchise. It seems that almost every season, one star or another needs to demand a trade. Last year, it was Anthony Davis and Paul George. The year before, Jimmy Butler and Kawhi Leonard. And on and on it goes. In fact, just out of interest, let's do a quick cross-comparison between the marquee players of the 90s versus the 10s. In the 90s camp, we will go with Michael Jordan, Hakeem Olajuwon, Karl Malone, Charles Barkley, Patrick Ewing, Shaquille O'Neal, Gary Payton, and John Stockton. For today's team, we'll put in LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, James Harden, Kawhi Leonard, Anthony Davis, Paul George, and Chris Paul. The first question in our little survey would be, how many players have either left or were traded away from their teams during their prime? In the 90s, it would have been 4 out of 8. I'm going to be generous and include MJ leaving for baseball, and say Payton was still in his prime during the Bucks trade. In the 10s, we have 7 out of 8. Stay strong, Curry. How many have left multiple teams during their prime? 1 out of 8 for the 90s, and 5 out of 8 in the 10s. I'll count Chris to the Rockets. How many forced to trade during their prime? Again, 1 out of 8 for the 90s, and again, 5 out of 8 in the 10s. We interrupt this program for a breaking announcement. Former Houston Rockets player James Harden has not so suddenly forced a trade to the Brooklyn Nets. Now look, for the purpose of this, that means it ticks up to 6 out of 8, but I do want to quickly say I apologise because I did the bulk of this recording before he went to Brooklyn, so there isn't really much talk on it, but look, all we can do is speculate, I guess, on KD's new super team, but for now, back to the podcast. Need I go on? To me, the trend seems pretty obvious. Star nowadays are getting traded more and more frequently. However, before I move on, I should do some due diligence and mention that stars such as Hakeem and Scottie Pippen in the 90s did request trades and just never received them, and that even older players like Wilt Chamberlain and Kareem did get traded during their primes. So yes, it is true that there has been a history of disgruntled stars in the NBA, however the sheer numbers that have been requested and that are getting traded has exponentially jumped since 2010. But alright, what did we learn from all this? Well, outside of the fact that Shaq may have actually been the engineer of the player empowerment era, what is clear to see is that today's stars don't actually stay put. Not only do they not stay put, they manipulate the makeup of their teams to cater to their own wants. LeBron may have never technically demanded a trade, but it is no secret that in his second stunt in Cleveland, he continuously signed one-year deals to force ownership to make win-now trades, with the implication that otherwise he would leave, which eventually, of course, he did. 
taking years' worth of draft picks and assets with him, leaving the Cavs in their current hell of inequity. Nor was it a surprise to anyone that after Anthony Davis signed on with a new agent in Clutch Sports, which is run by LeBron's longtime friend Rich Paul, he suddenly wanted a trade out of New Orleans and warded off any other potential destinations by saying he would only re-sign with the Lakers. This whole trend just leaves me a little confused, honestly, about why stars seem so unhappy. Perhaps as every second album has taught me, the pressure of fame and media attention is just too hard to handle. But even then, it still seems like just an exceptional number of basketball stars who aren't content with their place in life or satisfied with where they are. Maybe we could chalk it up to the fickle, fast-paced nature of modern communication. Just like with us millennials, social media has nurtured a need for instant gratification. So when it isn't felt with one organisation, our stars immediately move on to the next. Maybe it has something to do with the thought process around contracts in the NBA. Players often seem to act as though the contract they sign is a reward based off their previous play, not a commitment to do the same. And, if you feel that way, it does make a certain amount of sense to not care about the nature of commitment that is tied to the one you're currently on. But these are all just theories. The big burning question still to answer is how does this hurt other players? If you're a normal rotation player, you're always on the trading block. It doesn't matter if a star wants to request a trade, so why does them being able to control their destiny hurt you? Well, I'd argue two points. I think it can create a culture that is conducive to owners and fans being anti-player, and it also has directly hurt the salary of the average NBA player. I argue the second point because the other often forgotten third entity of the NBA is the fans. Stars want trades to cultivate an image in a certain market, to be in line, to win a championship, or very often just to play with a friend all of which can help cultivate their name in the off-season, allowing them to build notoriety or a brand for themselves, leading to them making lots of money off endorsements. This attitude, however, hasn't just affected the teams. It has shifted the way the sport is watched and thought about. You hear it all the time. People aren't Lakers fans, they're LeBron fans. They don't root for Warriors, they cheer for Curry. There is a downside to only caring about stars and legacies, though, and that is the loss of the love of the game, not just the literal on-the-court game, either. I mean the appreciation of the concept of team. To me what makes a championship special is the failures that came before it. To watch as a team grows, adapts and fights through adversity and competition until they reach their time, their chance, their shot. That is what a fan base can get behind and root for. But if a championship begins to become decided based on the whims of which player has the best market share in the league, or what collective of players are from the best draft class, then where is the value in winning? Honestly, not even I can answer that rhetorical question. But I do know that at least some people are asking it. And for good reason. The NBA fostered a culture that has become centred on the individual and not on the team or city. Where once again this focus on self and the constant need to succeed in the moment has ultimately hurt those around it. It has created a system where owners don't trust the players, players don't care about their teams and fans don't care about their organisations. Which, how could they? If every two years you look up and have a completely new roster, there is no chance for you to build a connection or care to your team. I'd assert that this disassociation from fam to team will hurt the common player most tangibly because it is part of why ratings are dropping. The focus on the off-season content to make the NBA a year-round sport, in my view, contributes to the decline in viewership of the games. Because by putting emphasis on the trades and speculation, we take interest off of the actual game. This compounds the mid-season fatigue of fans and effectively stops people from caring about watching, which, unfortunately for the players, when the majority of your salary comes from television revenue, is going to hurt the players during the next collective bargaining agreement. Stars are able to somewhat transcend this issue due to the sheer numbers on their salaries, plus their exterior endorsements. 
but for a bench player who is trying to fight for a second or third contract, a decline in their salary can become a real issue that will hurt their livelihood. Before I move on, I do want to extend an olive branch towards my stars, because I truly can sympathise with their position. A lot of stars, such as Kyrie Irving or Kevin Durant, have a volatile relationship with the media and often ownership. This stems from the fact that both these parties tend to treat the players as simple commodities, caring not about the people who they employ, but instead about their perception and bottom line. Thus, I can understand why star players, once they get their chance, want to use their position and leverage to separate themselves from the system and seize control of their own narrative. But I'd like to offer an idealistic counter to the way the majority of individuals go about this. Because a lot of people in the player empowerment era seem to be about a player getting a chance to be unloyal, to strike back at the organisation with a like-minded discontent for the cold-heartedness that they are shown. But two wrongs don't make a right. The way to progress in the NBA is not for everyone to act lawlessly and abandon the concept of loyalty. It is instead to set a social standard that will hold the organisations to a level of care that you would wish to feel. A lot of people might see this sort of strategy as a half measure, a liberal measure, so to speak. And I think that's because people conflate this ethos of kindness with complacency. However, I'm not asking for players to wait on the whims of the owners. We should all push for progress. Just like Andre Iguodala did in securing millions of dollars of investments by the owners towards the Black Lives Matter movement, which went to helping generational wealth. However, what I'm saying is that there is a difference between equality and entitlement. And far too often in the NBA, our stars seem to have lost themselves in the latter. The Iliad is a tragedy. In the end, Troy burns. Agamemnon is stabbed in the back, and Achilles is struck down by the gods because he is not unable to let go of his pride and anger. From the tales of ancient Greece to now, no one wins when we only act for ourselves. But alas, for now I must move on beyond the Achillean Dilemma and on to our next interesting topic, Attainable Stardom. I think having attainable stardom can itself be an unintentional tool for negativity. As the more relatable and attainable modern celebrity seems, the easier it is for everyone to tell themselves, that could be me. And if you're able to tell yourself that success, wealth and fame are just a TikTok algorithm away, the more complacent you are in accepting your potentially unfair lot in life, Seriously, there is a reason the lottery is called a tax on the poor, and it is for this exact reason. A dream is a powerful thing to sell, and it can act as well as any opiate. Plus, if you don't believe me on the erosion of stardom to normalcy, I'd urge you to pay attention to your next election, because it has gotten so bad that even our elected representatives seem to think it is more important to appear common than impressive. Not only do people feel closer to attaining stardom in our modern age, though, they also feel emboldened in being able to attack the character of stars. After all, they're just people too. Again, on balance, this is a good thing. We should be able to hold everyone to an equal standard within society. The wealthy and powerful shouldn't be able to brush off laws and social norms. However, there can be an ugly side to this, where people criticise not to equalise, but to tear down. Where they take the hatred of their lack of success out, not on society, but on its people. But hey, what does all this have to do with Pokemon Yellow speedrunning? Just use King, am I right? But... Seriously, it does have something to do with James Harden and the NBA. He may not be an A-lister in the annals of eternity, but he has certainly earned the title of star in the modern NBA. What gives him this stardom, though? It's not as though he is an impeccable physical specimen like LeBron. He doesn't have towering height and strength like Embiid, nor even the supernatural shooting ability of Curry. So what does he have? Well, I would argue he has a bit of an everyman's game. 
the jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none sort of style. He is a good enough shooter that you have to respect his shot. He is strong enough that he can go into his defender's body and initiate contact. He's a solid enough passer that you can't overhelp off him, crafty enough that he can draw fouls in any sort of situation, and a strong enough dribbler that he can create space. But what ties all of these together is that he's the face of the team. So really, what he gets is superstar calls. I know some people might be saying, superstar calls, really? That's just a stupid mantra that commentators spit out when they want to complain. Which, sure, that does happen. But the NBA, a lot like life, has a long treasured history of differential treatment towards their stars. In fact, there are two anecdotal snippets that spring to mind when I think about star treatment in the NBA. The first is Magic's famous quip towards Michael Jordan when posing for a Dream Team photo, in which he says, You can't get too close to Michael, it's a foul. Obviously, it's just a little light-hearted joke, and in kind, Jordan retorts by saying, I don't think you ever found out of a game. Innocent, iniquitous, and ingrained, just like the treatment of referees towards stars. You see, while the joke itself is small and innocent, it's a joke that lands and that is funny, because deep down, everyone knows that both of them get the light end of the whistle. The second example is a more direct call-out, and comes from a recent story by Raja Bell told in his podcast. He is talking about playing against Kobe, and how after he and Kobe had some choice words for each other, Bryant turned to the referee and said, call it even. To which apparently the referee confirmed that that was what he wanted to do and was like, alright Kobe. Taken that Roger isn't lying, this is a pretty blatant example. Both Kobe and the referee knew that he was going to get favoured calls to ensure that the star was appeased, and that the fans would be satisfied by Kobe not getting in foul trouble. The star call and differential treatment to the top players in the game makes sense when you think about it. The NBA is a business after all, and what helps to sell their brand is the presence of greater-than-life figures. Wilt, West, Robinson, Dr. J, Kareem, Magic and Bird, MJ, Shaq, Kobe, now LeBron. The NBA has a long lineage of star power, so it's no surprise that sometimes the NBA may help to nudge those stars in the right direction. And yes, I'm looking at you, LA vs. Sacramento, circa 2002. But much like society at large, the NBA seems to have a trend in which its stars have been usurped by the attainable. Perhaps it is an apparition, seen only by the fluke event of two one-in-a-billion players like Curry and Harden coming along at the same time. However, for the convenience of my metaphor, I'm going to disagree and instead assert that this trend is taking place due to the changing rules of the game. I'd assert that with the withdrawal of hand-checking, addition of landing space for shooters, emphasis on calling off the ball fouls and the rise of threes in the modern game, a new brand of superstar has been born. You see, the older generations of NBA fame has been held by larger-than-life figures. Wilt was both figuratively and literally a towering presence over the league, so physically dominant and ahead of his own time, that the game itself had to introduce goaltending and outlawed dunking from the three-throw line just to make it possible for others to have a chance. Magic was a 6'9 behemoth with the skills of a guard, the leadership of Alexander the Great, and the greatest court vision ever seen. Michael Jordan may not have been the most physically imposing individual in the history of the game, but his presence, his force of will and tireless work ethic, likened to the heroes of old. He put up Herculean efforts in his trials against the Pistons, and when it was all said and done, ascended to the pinnacle of sporting greatness. Plus, the dude wasn't called Air Jordan for nothing. Shaq picked up from the legacy of the big man of old, physically dominating the best athletes in the world, breaking rings and changing rules. Like the limitations on Wilt, the NBA had reintroduced zone defense in an attempt to give other teams a chance at guarding Superman. 
This didn't completely stop him from winning his chips, though, nor did it limit his once-time partner in crime, Kobe Bryant. If Shaq picked up from Wilt, then Kobe carried on from MJ. A one-man army, the Black Mamba, reintroduced the real will of a warrior, bringing forth a legacy that even Achilles could be proud of. In fact, one of Kobe's closest friends, Tracy McGrady, has said that in his early years in the league, Kobe was obsessed with the tale of Achilles. He was enthralled by and possibly grappling with the sacrifices that one must make when pursuing glory and greatness. Juxtapose that with James Harden for a second. Like any professional athlete, he is someone with a very high work ethic, but can you really say he has the will of a warrior? Kobe was a cerebral individual with his own faults, but his whole life centered around his drive to be the best, to measure up to the names of old. James Arden, on the other hand, has his own metric of play based on how good the strip clubs are and the cities he's playing in. Arden's like a TikTok algorithm or a Mr. Beast giveaway. He fell into the opportunity of being a superstar, getting lucky break after lucky break and found that it suited him. He was selected higher than he should have been and went to a great team that pushed for him to play. They traded away the players in front of him and set him up so that he could run their second unit. On the back of another superstar, they made it to the finals and he was pushed into the media spotlight. He was moved to a GM, Daryl Morey, who was looking to build around and create a star. He started getting the most ridiculous foul calls in the history of the NBA, and was given complete free reign over the game to shoot as much as he wanted, all of which allowed Harden and Houston to become the Frankenstein of the three-point revolution. Now, did he work to achieve these things? Yes. But does that change the fact that the only reason the James Harden we know today exists because at every turn he was given surplus opportunity? No. And deep down, every other player knows it too. I watched three random games. A regular season Jazz vs Nets game, a regular season Mavs vs Hawks game, and a playoff game, which was Rockets vs Lakers. In these games I counted every possession, every visible complaint to a referee by an on-court player, every time someone fell over, and every time someone presented as injured or hurt, but wasn't. In the Jazz vs Nets game, Kyrie Irving wasn't playing, so outside of the ascending Donovan Mitchell, there really wasn't any traditional offensive stars. In the game, on 24% of possessions, there was a complaint. On only 7% of possessions, did someone fall over, and on under 1%, someone presented as injured. But still, look, almost a quarter of possessions someone complained sounds pretty high, right? Well, sadly, not at all. In the same order for the Mavs vs. Hawks game, the results were 32%, 12%, and 2%. Turns out, Luca likes a good old complaint. Then the real kicker. We move into the territory of stardom, the great duel between LeBron and Harden, a showcase of two of the greatest scorers of our time. And with it, we get 69% for complaints, on 22% of possessions someone fell over, and on 5% someone acted injured. That's right, nearly the same amount of time someone complained in the first game, someone fell over in a Rockets vs Lakers affair. I mean, for God's sake, these are professional athletes and they're sliding across the floor like baby giraffes. Plus, one more thing to note would be that over the last three years, over 50% of the Houston Rockets shot attempts have come from three. So, despite a James Harden step back, I suppose, there's really nothing to complain on on a three-point attempt, which means that given that 59% of their possessions there is a complaint, almost every time someone drives, there has to be a complaint to the referee, which is just mind-boggling. And the NBA wonders why ratings are dropping. It's truly become an actor's league where the way to win is no longer strengthen team, but strengthen your team's ability to lobby the refs. 
my little premise for why this has happened is because the change in rules and focus has allowed for the everyman players like Harden to become this generation star. To me, Harden is like a reality TV star. Sure, he's funny, witty, he plays his role well, but who is to say you and your mates couldn't do the same thing? I mean, in the same way a reality star is famous because they're famous, Harden gets treated like a star on the court because, well, he's seen as a star. I think it's this tension that causes the massive rise in complaints and acting up within his own games. Harden, of course, plays it up because he knows that's how he will maintain his advantage. But as he gets away with these tactics, the opposing team must play into it as well. They either have to try to get the same calls or argue for them to stop. Either way, the game turns more into a court of appeals than a court of basketball. To hyperbolically make my point, I'm going to play a small game that people look, might hate. If I were to put Prime Aaron Afolo in James Harden's shoes, how well would he do? Now, I'm sure everyone would be shouting terribly, or perhaps, who was Aaron Afolo? And to either answer, I'm going to have to remind you that Afolo was a pretty solid 3 and D wing who bounced around the league over the last decade. In fact, in the 2011-12 season, the year before Harden left for Houston and was the third option in OKC, I'd say they had pretty comparable seasons. Harden was playing 31.4 minutes a game at a usage rate of 21.6%. The Nuggets were slightly more of an ensemble cast, but Aaron was pretty much the third option on that Nuggets team, and he played 33.6 minutes a game with a 19.1% usage rate. So essentially the same access to opportunity, and both were on solid playoff teams. Harden was able to put up 16.8 points per game, 3.7 assists, and 2.2 turnovers on 49-39-85 shooting splits. Afolo was able to get 15.2 points per game, 2.4 assists per game, and 1.4 turnovers on 47-40-80 shooting splits. I should also note that Harden had 6-3 throw attempts a game to Afolo's 4, so even before the subjective injection of stardom calls, Harden was better at getting to the line. But, Aflolo was also playing against starting lineups, and thus usually harder competition. So once again I'd posit, what if Aaron Aflolo had been sent to Houston and built around instead of being traded to a terrible situation in Orlando? Now, to not be too blatantly biased, I do personally think Harden is a better player in a vacuum. He was always better at getting to the rim and drawing fouls, always seemed to be a stronger playmaker and passer, and was superior at off-the-dribble threes. Aflolo, on the other hand, was a better defender, even if this did drop off when he focused on his offense. He was arguably a better catch-and-shoot player, and he did have a solid mid-range turnaround game that would allow him to create shots against smaller or similar-sized players. Now, I would also be neglect to mention that while Harden is a better passer, he was also far more turnover-prone, which has manifested in him becoming the highest turnover player in the league due to his increased role. Another point, though, to kind of side note is while their counting shooting stats seem similar, thanks to the shot distribution, Harden is technically a far more efficient player. Once again, his reliance on threes and three throws really helps him here, and it's the reason why, even though they sound similar, Aflolo had a true shooting percentage of 58% that year, and Harden had 66%, which is a massive gap. You could maybe argue that both players went to comparable teams, both terrible defensively, Rockets were 28th and Orlando were 24th in opponent points per game, and both censored on perimeter creation and three-point shooting. The difference came with Houston being able to rank second in offensive points per game for the 2012-13 season, while Orlando ranked 24th, thus leaving three possibilities. Harden's creation and driving pushed their offense to another level. Maybe the Rockets simply had a better team and system, 
or the third would be a combination of better supporting players and ease of offense due to the superior focal point. I think the third option is most correct. Lynn and Beverly are a nicer point guard combo than Jameer Nelson and Ben Udrow. Amir Ashik and Patrick Patterson are another slight upgrade over Young Vucevic and Glenn Davis, and also provide more space and versatility. Then, not to be too reductive, but Magic could only shoot 33% from three while Rocket shot 37%, which I know sounds close, but the difference between the Rocket's 6th offensive efficiency and the Magic's 27th was 8.1 points per 100 possession, which, when 35% of your shots come from three, making an extra 4% of them, makes a massive difference over the length of a season. So fine. After all this, I don't think Aaron Ofolo was better than James Harden. But I guess that's the true lie of reality stars. They make you believe it's easy to be as successful as them, but when you get back to reality, look, the truth is, you and your dumbass friends, you aren't that funny. Maybe if you found a good situation, Ofolo could have been a good Jalen Brown or Wesley Matthews type, but, oh well, you'll live on in my heart, and look, I only really chose him because I liked him in 2K12 anyway. So alas, the other side of the coin is flipped. Opportunity doesn't mean you will produce. I've constantly been talking about how James was showered by opportunity, but what about someone like Andrew Wiggins? He is a parallel to Harden in this way. A high school star who was recruited to a great college, after a semi-lackluster and disappointing year still went number one overall, was traded away and immediately became the focus of an offense, didn't produce at a high level but was still given a max contract and a focal position in the team and finally has been traded away to become a piece for one of the greatest teams of his generation. Who knows, maybe he will produce on Golden State with ample room and the worst perimeter defender from each team on him. But either way, the dude has been given his chances and he isn't exactly a perennial MVP candidate, is he? Fine, you got me again. You can squander your opportunity. But what if I told you I was Kira this entire time and you've simply fallen for my trap? Because if we are to accept that Harden is truly superior to your average shooting guard like Aaron Ofolo, and that he is able to take full advantage of his opportunities unlike Wiggins, then why would we want him to get preferential treatment in-game thanks to his stardom? Why are we still making it easier for him to succeed against these other people? This is why I dislike the current NBA obsession with stars, and the pressure it puts on referees to let them act like stars. As I briefly touched on with Wilden and Shaq, for the older generation, and particularly the big men, the game was tweaked to keep its competitiveness intact. Personally, I'm against double standards across the board, but at least the intended outcome of those decisions was to truly help the competitive nature of the game. However, now with the small boy era, the game continues to change to help its stars, to accentuate their advantages. This has been done for two main reasons, to help create the identity of stars in the league, and to allow for better highlights. I think both of these ultimately hurt the NBA and the competitive spirit of the game. If you take someone like Harden or LeBron, who are masters of drawing contact and get into the line, then how is it a good idea to create a culture conducive to them getting calls? Surely giving the best players further lenience hurts the virtue of competition in the game at large. And heck, I'm not even touching on the inbuilt biases and preferential treatment stars get from their own organisations that make their jobs easier than the common player. But before I give myself an aneurysm talking about why sports should go back to the good old days, I might switch up my tact a bit. So to end this segment, and to help you picture my side of the argument, I'm going to offer up two little tales of opportunity. So here, here's the deal. This is me from, I guess, slightly less in the past. Look, I tried to do this segment like four different ways. I kept rewriting it and adjusting it, and it just, it didn't work. So I'm going to give you the little synopsis and try and just move on, because it ain't at in chief. 
The point I was going to be making in this segment was around the Australian housing market and the reasons why we have the usual millennial complaints of no one being able to afford a house. And essentially this has happened within Australia because we have a very strong housing market and continual immigration into our coastal cities that keeps a strong demand coming for more houses, or more specifically apartments I suppose. Anyway, at some point along the line, I suppose because prices have literally non-stop risen since the 70s, it has become like the Australian middle class dream to own a rental property. And I'm not trying to talk shit, like, I have it too. Honestly, I spent half my free time scrolling realestate.com for an estate in Kayama that I'll one day be able to buy. And like, I don't know, it's just, it's bred into me, I just want it. Of course, I spend the other half of my time trying the slightly more realistic goal of fridge shopping. Anyway, my sad life aside, the Australian housing dream is getting crushed because we have such a strong market that international investors, or sometimes just our own homegrown billionaires, I suppose, are very often coming over the top and inflating prices because they know that, in time, it will be a good return, and they have deep enough pockets to shell out the initial million dollars of losses. This, of course, shuts off our middle class and younger generation Australians from the housing market, which is why the number of Australian households who are renting has increased by more than 10% over the last 25 years. And the percentage of Australians who own their home outright has dropped from 41% in 1966 to 31% in 2016. But beyond this, the point I was trying to illustrate with my now non-existent stories was how perceivably good laws such as negative gearing for houses doesn't actually help those in the middle or on the bottom, but only helps those who have the most money and thus can use it to the fullest. Because while tax deductions on rental losses might seem really nice if you're a meddling Australian trying to afford a rental property, all that really means is that external investors are given a reason to come over the top of you and raise the price of houses, effectively shutting you and the general populace out from the chance of buying that house in the first place. As, for example, while negative gearing might mean that you have wiggle room for a bad year if you own your house, if you own an entire apartment complex, it means that you can leave 4% of your apartments unrented, artificially inflating the cost of the houses that you are renting out by making a larger demand, and bringing back on your losses that you haven't rented out thanks to negative gearing. However, this was all just one mere story used to illustrate the issues of unequal generational wealth. If you wish to delve deeper into it, then feel free to look into the group economic movements in American communities. I even believe Ikadala had it on his jersey in the bubble. Because, once again, life isn't so different to the NBA. If you're Danny Green or Karl Kovar, it probably seems awesome to be given land in space, but every time that landing space helps you get a foul or a free shot, I can guarantee it will help harden three times as much. So I suppose all I really wanted to share with my non-existent scurries was a little bit of scepticism, and say that as much as a new law or change in rule might seem to optically help you, you should probably double-check to ensure it isn't hurting your ability to close the gap.